Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back. Sports to the Max. Two years later, George Floyd's death, taking a look at how his life changed. How is it different? It's certainly different. And there have been a lot of changes. Many of them for the good. Um, some slow. Some seem to be stuck uh, in neutral. Joining us now on the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline, uh, the man that runs the fourth precinct in the north side of Minneapolis, Charlie Adams. And he is uh, somebody that I always check with to get the temperature of what's going on uh, in Minneapolis and beyond. And uh, Charlie, thank you for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Take me back, I guess. I don't think I've ever asked you this question, but it happened on Memorial Day 2020. Do you remember that day? Did you know right away that this was going to be something that was it was going to be drastic and significant, or, or was there not enough information at that time? Well, you know, I, I received a call from my boss uh, that morning and told me to go look at uh, a particular uh, community person's uh, Facebook site to look at the video and and once I watched the video, I knew that we had some issues. Mm. So I immediately got um, got ready, went down to my office, which was in City Hall, called up Chief Aaron Dando, and I asked him, I said, what do you need from me? He says, I need you to be at a 10 o'clock meeting with the community folks. So that's what I did that day and met with the community folks a couple hours. What did they say to you at that time? Were they giving you feedback? What was it? Well, the thing is, most of the community folks, my, some of my community partners, like Spike Moss, Reverend McAfee, um, the Kima Levy Pounds was there, uh, Armstrong, I should say. It's just a, a host of different community people I've been knowing for years. So there just was a discussion about what the chief was going to do. Uh, talked about, you know, the, uh, the importance to come out right away with some type of statement. Uh, uh, they talked about having a particular officer Chauvin fired at that time. They weren't really sure about the other three officers at that point in time but um the chief said he had some things he had to check with the city attorneys some things and i think about 1 30 is when he made his announcement that he had terminated all the officers involved did you think that there was going to be great unrest and protest at that point in time or was it hard to tell at that point that day I, it was hard to tell right you know but i know what, what had happened in the past with some of our other officer involved that you know was, their potential for the unrest was going to be there now, on top of that, uh, your your son is also on the front lines once this thing uh, starts to reach its apex, and, and your son Charles is out there as, as an officer defending, uh, and he's literally on the front lines. And, and, and um, as I recall, uh, at best, I mean, it, it was pretty the, – the officers were, you know, uh, I don't want to say they were targeted, but certainly they, they were um, – uh, they were not respected like you think they might be in, in, in normal circumstances. What was that like to have him out there as well? And, and I know that you guys are well-trained in this and you've seen things like that, but, but what was that like to not know you're sending him into the unknown as well? Well, the interesting thing about that, he was out there and he was doing security for the firefighters, for Minneapolis firefighters. Yep. And I didn't learn until he did a HBO special 
that he shots they were being shot at and that was and that was months way after this and he never told me that story how he feared for his life and the other officers that were out there so uh, yeah he was in the midst of it bullets were flying over their heads and they were there for protection for our Minneapolis firefighters yeah, the, they, trying to put out the fires. He told me that the, the turning point, at least for the police officers, was when the Humvees showed up for the National Guard because the optics of that changed the crowd in terms of crowd control. Do you remember that piece of it? Yeah, I do. I, I remember when they showed, yeah, they showed up and when we had the additional resources from, from the State Patrol and from the uh, National Guards, it was just a different feeling that now we have more support because our officers for those couple of days were really overworked. Uh, they were trying to pull every resource from NPD to, to go out there and be on the front lines. And, uh, and at that point, we just really didn't have enough people to deal with, with the mass crowds. Charlie, what was it like the next few days? Were you guys on edge? Were you sleeping at the office? What, what, what do you do? How do you form at that point? Well, you know, my, my, position, my position was a community, right? So we formed some community groups to go out and do some community protection for the neighborhoods that we couldn't protect, right? Uh, my, you know, one of my main point co- uh, points of contact was Reverend Jerry McAfee and the other black ministers who went out and protected like Solo Foods because we kind of lost Cub Foods in North Minneapolis due to some looting and things like that. So I was just positioning different community groups to, to help us make sure our community is uh, protected. So, but my my night, my night, I was up every day and I didn't go to bed at three o'clock at, at night, right? Because mm-hmm. I was in strict communication with the fourth precinct inspector at that time was Kevin Paulfus and his staff. And then I was also in contact with chief Aaron Dondo, you know, um, nightly. So it was, it was, it was a real chaotic for, for, for all of us. You remember that Saturday, um, Thursday night, they burned down the third precinct, uh, Friday night, they, uh, shut down 35 for a while. And then, uh, Lake street was set on fire and the next day, they, they in, in, uh, implemented a curfew, and everybody knew it was at 8 o'clock at night. Charlie, I don't know if you remember this, because I was over in North Minneapolis that day, I remember, and talking to some business owners and whatnot. But it was it was a beautiful day, and you could just feel it building uh, throughout the day. Like 8 o'clock was, was, was the line, the line in the sand, and we, nobody knew what was going to happen. And, and, and different business owners were going to protect their businesses at all costs. I just remember that eerie feeling in, in North Minneapolis as you saw cars driving around and you weren't quite sure who was on what side of things. What do you remember about that day? Well, you know, that, that actually the Friday is what I remember the most because when they when they were in uh, the 5th Precinct and they were burning down like the bank, uh, Wells Fargo. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was right there. They've taken that ATM machine apart, yep. Right, and I worked in that precinct as a patrol officer for seven years, right, and then went back for a couple more years as a sergeant. So that really hit home for me because that was my area that I patrolled yep. for all those years. So, you know, and and, and and the very next day, I was just so upset about what happened over over there, all those businesses being burnt out. You know, it was that eerie feeling. I think I reached out to our local radio station when the curfew went, what was going to be uh, imposed. I reached out to KMLJ. Yep. You know, and had came up in, in Walter Cuber Banks. Cuber, yep. I reached out to, yep, I had reached out to him, and I actually reached out to Terry Lewis to do a, uh, some type of public service announcement about be, go, go inside for the uh, curfew. So I was actually in communication with Terry, Terry Lewis hmm. and his brother Jerome Benton out in California. And so Terry did a little quick uh, PSA for us, and we were able to get that on KMLJ through uh, Walter Banks. Oof. So There was a lot going on. So tell me this. 
How has it changed in the last two years? How, how do you feel about North Minneapolis, the 4th Precinct, or even over the 3rd Precinct, you're familiar with them all. How, how is it different two years later? Uh, you know, you know, I, I think people are still, uh, you know, hurting over it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the healing has not really begun, I don't think, with some communities. I mean, Northside, uh, you know, our community is basically starting to heal, and um, they've been very supportive of myself and my staff and my officers. And, um, and, you know, I like to tell the story how we had an open bid this year for officers to go to any precinct within the city, and my precinct was the first precinct to, uh, to fill up. And it wasn't because of my leadership. It was because they know they received support from uh, the residents of North Minneapolis, right? I don't think the other precincts are seeing so much support, you know, uh, but I, you know, but it's been a lot of change uh, for us as in, in, in Minneapolis. There's been so many policy changes that it's kind of hard to keep up. Every week, there's three or four different uh, policy changes that we have to uh, make changes to. So we've been doing a lot to make those policy changes with the last two years. I know one of the areas that concerns you a great deal, which isn't in the fourth precinct, but uh, downtown Minneapolis. And, and I, I asked you one night we were talking, and I said, "Why is that?" And you said, "Because." Many of, the, many of the areas are territorial, meaning you know the people, but in downtown they gather and, and they're from all over. And therefore you don't know and you don't have the same contacts and conduits uh, that you do in other segments of the, of the city. And, and that's why downtown Minneapolis becomes a little bit more potentially scary, doesn't it? Yeah, and, you know, and I've always learned when I worked in Mayor Belton's office that downtown Minneapolis is important to the state of Minnesota. If we lose downtown Minneapolis then the state loses, right? So it's important that we make sure downtown Minneapolis is safe. I know Inspector Peterson has done a, a great job of taking that, uh, you know, knife and nickel area back. He's also used community resources such as uh, Luce Lamink, uh, 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 We Push for Peace, Mad Dads. Mad Dads, yep. Groups, yep. Yep, groups on the ground to go over there and, and, and assist Target with some of the issues they were having over there. So, I, you know, it's interesting to see other inspectors using community folks to help assist with some of the uh, crime issues. Charlie, if you see a group of people gathered, uh, as we do frequently downtown Minneapolis, and you've got a police uniform on, uh, is it easy for you to walk in and begin conversations with them, or is it a stay-away situation? What is, what is that like when you see people and you say, I can't quite tell what's going on there, but i got a pretty good idea it's not good? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, like North Minneapolis, I mean, you know, I experience that all the time. I just go up and ask them what's going on, you know, and have that conversation with them. A lot of times when you have the conversation with folks, you know, then, then you'll get a sense of what's going on, right? Uh, most people, you know, we try to tell our officers, you just got to go out there and talk to folks and find out what's going on and just have a conversation. They may just be hanging out and not even really doing anything, right? And then you learn a lot from them that was actually what's going on in the area. If you just open your mouth and have a conversation with them. Last, Charlie, how do you see the next year on North, in North Minneapolis? What concerns you the most? What what gives you the most optimism? Well, you know, our violence is still up. We had a double homicide two weeks ago. Then there was a, a double homicide on uh, Robbinsdale. All that stuff is connected. So I've just got to, you know, keep making sure that, you know, my officers respond, give service to the community. Uh, you know, I'm working really hard with my community partners, but we have a lot of other agencies like ATF, we have the Hennepin County Voltoff, we have the State Patrol, we have a lot of commu- uh, partners that's coming in and working in North Minneapolis, which is actually going to make a difference. Uh, you know, for the bad guys out there creating uh, problems in the community, we're going to come after you. We're that's coming. My, that's my model. We're coming, right? 
Yeah, we're coming. Yep. 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 Make no mistake. And you heard it. So don't <laughs> don't think we're not. Hey, hey Charlie, thank you so much. Always enjoy it. Thank you for some perspective on this. I look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. Charlie Adams. I tell you, I've been reflecting a lot today in the last couple of days about, you know, what happened two years ago. I'll tell you a poignant moment that I've never disclosed before when we come back. Stay with us. So much going on, so much to process, whether it's Texas or looking back two years later in Minneapolis, uh, just a lot of stuff going on. But one of the things that I remember that I'll never forget was um, the a few days after the, the, the riots had subsided and um, we, we were all trying to figure out what's next. And the devastation, the carnage was unbelievable. It was everywhere. And, and it, it, if you toured Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Midway area, for sure, you, you saw it time after time. Uh, what had been done and the destruction. And they, and they had a, uh, a march of faith leaders and they gathered in St. Paul and they gathered to march as one. Uh, faith leaders from all over. Christian and within Christian, you could be Baptist, you could be Catholic, you could be uh, Lutheran, it didn't matter. And you could be Jewish and you could be Hindu, it didn't matter. Uh, they gathered together. And... Um, Everybody's searching for answers, and they just wanted to show their strength and, and, and that they had uh, a synergy and they had an alliance amongst each other. And three different um, ministers, all African-American women at different times, ministers of different churches, came up to me and said, we watched you out there during the riots, and I just want you to know that our family at one point in time stopped and said, and we just said a prayer for you, that you get through it safely. And then another one would say something similar. We're praying for you. We were praying for you throughout. And then a third one said the same thing. And it brought me to tears. And it gave me such a sense. These are three African-American female ministers. That, um, And I grew up a small town white boy, right, from Gaylord, Minnesota. Um, we don't have a lot in common except our spirituality and our beliefs or Christian beliefs in this case. But to feel that, to see that, was such a ray of hope. And it was so much bigger than what was going on at that time. It was so much bigger than everything we were seeing and feeling at that time. Now, a lot of things happened during that first week after. But what a lot of people don't realize is the after effects and the after effects are twofold. It's fear and it's disrespect. Fear to be in the city, disrespect because law enforcement officials don't get the same respect that they used to. And three months later, what many people will forget was the worst night that I ever experienced on the streets. And that's when they, they came after downtown Minneapolis, when police were in pursuit of a man that was wanted for murdering someone at a parking garage and they tracked him down to 7th and Nicollet, and he shot himself, killed himself, suicide, broad daylight. And somebody yelled, the cops killed him, even though he had taken his own life. And they proceeded, they meaning the protesters that came in and gathered, to try to tear downtown Minneapolis, to try to burn downtown Minneapolis down, and they, and, and they did some damage. Oh, did they do some damage. And they started a fire inside of Brits. They, we watched as they took up garbage can and they use the garbage can to break the window and then enter whatever it is in this case devil's advocate was the name of the restaurant and they did the same thing over at ruth chris steakhouse 
and they'd pull safes out of there. And I went out there to try to report a few times. And I remember having two of them live on TV with me saying, we've seen the tape because we had possession of the tape and, and this, this was a self-inflicted wound. You guys are protesting, not the cop shooting someone, but a self-inflicted wound. And I've seen the tape, and we have seen the tape, and we have verified the tape, the video. And they said, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. We think a cop shot him. And then it was then that I realized that this is going to be a really difficult hill to climb because there's such a mistrust and a disconnect. Even when we tell them we've seen the video, and if you're not on the side that they want you to be on, you're in trouble. And that's one of the biggest things that we need to overcome in the years ahead, the months ahead, the years ahead, for sure in Minneapolis and beyond. Uh, When we come back, uh, he too was involved in it. And today I saw him again. He was over at St. Paul Highland Park High School. Toya Daniel is his name. And he had a member of the Timberwolves with him. And some of the good things that they're doing to restore it uh, in St. Paul and beyond when we come back on Sports to the Max. Sports to the max take a little bit different turn as we look back two years ago to George Floyd and incorporate in the Texas shootings and everything else as is Jermaine right now. Joining us in the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline, the one and only Teo Daniel, uh, who I got to know as well through the uh, protests I've stayed in touch with. And today I saw him out at Highland Park High School. More on that in a minute. Uh, but he joins us now. Teo, thank you for joining us. Hi, how you doing, Mike? Good. Always good to visit with you. Take me. What was the first time I met you out there? Was that the plaza two years ago? I, I can't remember exact. I remember meeting you. And I, what was it uh, down by U.S. Bank Stadium? Exactly. It was out, right outside of U.S. Bank Stadium at actually the first protest. And was we that were the first one? On the turnout. But the very first one, we were uncertain on the turnout, huh. and all of a sudden, ten thousand people showed up. And you needed water and everything else to get through it. And, and then what, what did you learn over the next several days? Because you spent a lot of time in that area. Um, I'm just, I just learned that, that the, you know, people can come together peacefully in the community. And, the, and, I, and I really seen that. And I had a lot of hope for the city. And I had hope that, uh, that we can make a difference if we come together as a community. Do you think that was achieved to an extent? Or two years later, how do you feel about it? Um, I do feel like we have made progress, yep. although there's still a lot of work to do. I think people are, are understanding that the awareness was met, right? Mm-hmm. But now it's like, what next? And a lot of people are confused on how can we still continue this fight for justice and this fight for equality um, through other endeavors besides marching. So we're trying to figure that out. A lot of people are trying to do that. And that's why I did the, the project today um, on the day of uh, George Floyd's anniversary, you kind of show an example of one way you can help your community. Okay, explain what you did today. So today, <clears throat> we had um, a group of young individuals at Highland Park High School who um, interned at my company, Eterna Media, and learned about different types of technology um, pertaining to the Web3 space, in particular NFTs and how you can use NFTs to uh, impact communities. Uh, I'm going to stop you right there, too. Just explain what an NFT is. NFT is a non-fungible token. Um, so just to, to simply put it, it's um, it's created on the blockchain, and it's a, a lot of people are using digital art um, to express that. So it's like, you know, let's give you an example, like um, a picture of a, uh, of a painting, but you put it, in, you make it in the digital world, and that way the, the 
people, um, the blockchain, which are different computers around the world, can communicate with each other and authenticate that this is um, the real deal right here. And um, this NFT digitally can be sold and resold again and resold again and resold again and resold again. So there's some type of significance to this certain NFT, you know, like a collector's item, you know, now they're seeing a lot of sports memorabilia are being transferred to, to digital NFTs and are being resold um, and, mem- and and stuff like that. They can actually generate income and you can connect that through a, what they call smart contracts. You can put in that smart contract that a certain percentage, every time it's resold, goes to this charity, this organization, this community project, et cetera. Who would buy it? Is it people that want to print it out and hang it on their wall? Who is it? Um, it's all different types of people. It's kind of like, you know, depending on the NFT, what type of art is it? Who is the artist that created it? Um, what is, who's, who's the athlete? You know, it's kind of like, you know, why do people collect baseball cards or why do people collect digital art or why do people like certain fashion? So it all depends on the creator of the NFT as well as what the, the utility behind the NFT. Some people collect certain NFTs just because it, it invites them into a community of people that own similar NFTs. Um, which they then discuss on a Discord. But that's a whole uh, other story that we can get into. <laughs> so in essence, what you want to be is an original, and, and, and you want to create some kind of a, a picture or something, in this case, what we're talking about today at least, uh, some piece of art that, that is original and unique, and, and then there's a way for you to, in essence, patent it digitally, and, and then once it moves, uh, so too does the money move with it? Exactly. Um, so you can make a collection of NFTs, right? You can have 500 of them. You can have one of them. You can have a thousand of them. You can have a 10,000 of them. So let's say, for example, um, when, when, the, when the Super Bowl was held, if we had every player on the, on the, on the field sign this NFT and it was only 10,000 of them made, right? Um, those can resell forever. So 50 years from now, somebody could say, I have the digital NFT from the Super Bowl when it was in Minneapolis. And people will actually want to buy that because they want to be able to hold that. Um, and then you can connect that to um, a certain charity that every time it's sold, it goes to that specific charity and whatnot. And so th- documentation. Go ahead. I said things just move from account to account digitally, and you don't. it's not cash business. It just moves from place to place, and you've got it in the bank. Exactly. And, then, and it goes through what they call cryptocurrency. Um, right now it's Ethereum that they use from a lot of them, but there's Solana and all that kind of stuff that is more – um, environmentally conscious, and those are some of the things that they're working on right now to make this type of technology safer. But all in all, um, the, you know, the reason why um, I'm really getting into the space is because I know that this type of technology is here to stay, and I want people of color to be able to experiment and be aware of what's going on in this shift right now and be able to contribute and participate so they're not late to the table. Theo Daniels, our guest. And how does Josh uh, Okogi come into this? Well, you know, one thing about the youth is they love sports and there's a synergy between sports and technology that you're seeing right now. They're turning NFTs into highlights. Um, you can buy a certain dunk that's an NFT that, that you've seen in a playoffs, for example. Um, and, and, and how technology is interacting in sports is very interesting to a lot of the youth. So using that sports, um, that sports awareness as a gateway to get kids to be attracted to that. They're like, oh, sports and this new Web3 area. It's very exciting. And, and, and right now with the youth, we're competing for attention. And I knew that a lot of the stuff about this stuff wasn't being taught at schools. So I wanted to take it upon myself to partner with people like Josh Okogi, who really cares about the community 
and and really b- drive awareness to this new technology, not for the financial gains, but for the uh, tremendous social impact that we could make by using this type of technology. So what you wanted to do today was to, to un- unleash some of the creativity in the kids and let them know what was possible. Was that, was that a part of the point? Exactly. To let them know what's possible. These kids have been working all spring. So a lot of the, the teams, you know, which is called MNFT, shout out to MNFT. You can follow them on Instagram. But we wanted to get them together and, and, and work with them for the entire spring. And they wanted to showcase their artwork. They wanted to gift it to the Timberwolf player, Josh Okoge, as well as Jared Vanderbilt. And, and, and also um, some of these proceeds that from the NFT launch that we're going to be launching soon here are going to go to building a community tech hub that is in the same neighborhood as George Floyd Square at the Sabathany Center on 38th and 4th. Yeah, you've already so, got that picked out. What will that encompass? What will that be? That's going to be a place where people, where where inner city kids can go there and learn about all different types of technology. Have, not only learn about it, but have access to technology, have access to career pathways in these in these fields, as well as you know be able to have fellowship there, you know, and and have a safe space. This community tech hub was designed by the youth and it's for the youth, and that's through a, a nonprofit called Smart Smart North. You guys can go check them out at smartnorth.org if you want to keep up with the community tech hub. But yeah, I mean, we're pretty excited about this and we want to keep going on as really, you know, this, this area of media and tech drive a lot of wealth. I mean, as you can see, people like Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, these individuals passed up traditional wealthy people in a matter of years. So we know that these two spaces generate a lot of wealth. But unfortunately, these are also two spaces that don't have the representation of people of color that I would like to see. So my, my goal is to get more people of color into these spaces starting with the youth because the youth is our future and potentially have these people create genius ideas and create yells and bring it back to their own communities. Tio Daniel, our guest, who, who is the profile of the kid that gravitates to this? Uh, can you describe him or her? To be honest, you know, it's really all different types of uh, type of kids. You know, a lot of kids are like in this space. You know what I mean? Um, definitely the gamers, right? The kids are like on the computer. But if we can see today, you know, gr- when I was growing up, we all liked to be outside Today's generation, they all like to be on the, they all like to have these, the TVs to their face, right? They always want to be on the screens. Um, so really, I mean, I've seen a wide demographic. I mean, kids who like music are in, are in this space. Kids who like gaming are in this space. Kids who like sports are in this space. It just depends on what type of, you know, what attracts you to this space and how you can connect it to a lot of the things that you're passionate about. And so that's what we really wanted to showcase um, with this group of NMST. You have kids from all different ranges. You have people who like, kids who like art. That just like creating the design. Then you have kids who like the sports aspect of it and how they can connect it to the sports. Then you have kids who like the music NFTs and how music is changed. The NFT is changing the music world. Um, and then you like kids who like to market it and put it on social media and Instagram and just like the whole evolution of this new space. Um, how has your life changed in the last two years since I first met you, since George Floyd, since that week? Um, I would say that, you know, I'm very, I'm more focused on. The, the economic solutions, you know, I'm realizing a lot of the uh, uh, injustices that we've been seeing for centuries um, are from economic injustices. Um, you know, poverty is a big underground foundation for a lot of the trauma that we see today. So I, I feel that, you know, because of this, um, my company has really changed my life. Technology has changed my life and I was able to do pretty well. Um, so I want other people to be able to reap the benefits. I want to pay it forward. And I want to get more people into this space 
so we can generally find solutions. And I feel that technology is a big indicator in how to solve a lot of these solutions. My friend PJ Hills always said this, that technology can be the great equalizer. I just had him on earlier tonight. We were just talking on this uh, very program, Tio. Uh, Tio, let me ask you something else so that, that that's uh, it's in line with, but it's a little off the beaten path. What we're talking, where, where does the fatherless home fit into fixing uh, the culture of the urban area? Where, where, you know, there there are uh, PJ's a good example. Uh, last when this happened a couple of years ago, we were talking about some of the people that were leading the movement and and, and the peaceful protests, and somebody said, "Yeah, they all had dads at home." That's what they got for a common yeah. denominator. It's not about whether they're black or not. It's that they got their dads mm-hmm. at home. Where, where, do, where does fatherless fit into the importance of changing a culture? I mean, it's, and it's sad to say, statistics does show that, um, you know, fatherless homes have an impact on, on traumatizing youth when they're young. Um, you know, we all like to see ourselves, right? So when, when young boys don't see a, um, older men being able to teach them how to groom themselves teach them um, and set examples for them. It's hard for them to really feel that they, it's hard for them to see themselves in, in role models. That's why it's so important for other men to reach out to the, a lot of these kids who don't have fathers and become mentors. And again, that's why we're creating this community tech hub because there's going to be a lot of mentorship programs in that. Um, and that's why I'm so passionate about going around working with young men and young boys, because I feel that the one connection that you can have is just by seeing yourself in somebody. So if I see, if I'm a young kid, a young black kid, and I see a young black man that really cares about me and loves me, it's going to impact my life and it's going to help me keep on a, on, a, on a straight path. And last, I think along those lines, Larry McKenzie was on with us. We we're talking about it. Is you know, a fatherless home isn't just void of a father, and as you mentioned, a role model. It, it's it's a form of rejection to some or abandonment. And and that's right. why mentors that stick with kids are so important that they can trust them that they will they will not run out on them. Where does that fit in? I mean, it, it fits in you know right in all aspects. I mean, um, when you don't have a father in your home and and you're seeing everybody else with a father in the home, it could take it it could take a big toll on self significance, mm-hmm. which is a key factor to um, child development. Um, and 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 not only just a fatherless home, but um, um, positive role models. So some people can have a father in their home and not be a positive role model. So it's really important to have strong leaders, strong mentors, to really be consistent and advocate for others. And this is why I advertise a lot of the stuff I do, because at first I was against really showcasing a lot of philanthropy work I do. But then I realized the more that I advertise, the more that people want to get involved, and the more that I can encourage other positive male role models to get involved in these young men's lives. Teo Daniel, thank you for giving us some time. Always good to see you today. We will stay in touch, my man. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for reaching out. I appreciate it. You bet. Teo Daniel, doing some things in the community to make a difference. Take a break. Come back. Finish up this edition of Sports to the Max. Stay with us. Welcome back. Sports Plus to the Max tonight. Tubbsy, I, I want to talk about something that has nothing to do with what we've been talking about the last couple of hours, just something that's kind of mindless and, and, and right to the crux of what would be a traditional sports talk show, okay? Okay, fire away. Um, do you think that when we talk about analytics, and we all talk about analytics all the time, right, uh, should there be a separate category for weather? Meaning, um, if we're going to go this far with data, you take a day mm-hmm. like today where the Twins are playing and it, it, there's some precipitation, mm-hmm. um, should managers have access to say, you know, uh, Carlos Correa – uh, while he hits, you know, 315 lifetime, he's only 260 when, when the winds are from the north and, and it's, you know, 
uh, 52 degrees out. Do, do, do we need to get there because you know, how the ball travels and how guys respond and play? No, nah, I, I don't think so. It, it's funny because baseball is such an analytical sport, and they've got numbers for everything. Yeah. I, and I've been joking I, I about, think about this because today we have this bad weather, and I'm thinking, is there is there an analytic category for that? Yeah, and it's it's funny because – I've joked about that very same thing. It's like, okay, you know, what is this guy's batting average? You know, daytime games on Wednesday. Yeah, we've kind of heard the day-night thing a little bit. Yeah, yeah when you know, when the temperature is above 70, the humidity is less yeah, than 65% yeah. and the wind's coming. It's well, like, we've done that in fun. In yeah, yeah, yeah. W- w- we have. Um, I think if you get too far into the weeds, you start to take the athleticism out of the game, and you try and break it down too much. Because if you try and break it down too much, then you're like, eh, maybe we shouldn't play. You know, ah, the conditions, it might not be the best because my guy might be slumping. You know, he, he might not play the best in this weather condition. And I, I think at points, we get a little too analytical with things. That's, that's but, just But do you think they haven't really uncovered yet? Like, like do, you, do you think there'd be a, a, a consistent pattern with, say, Dylan Bundy pitched today? Do, do you think it would be easy for them to reference and go, look at well, if it doesn't get above 50 degrees, this this guy's pretty unhittable. Oh, I'm, I mean, you could probably find numbers that could support I, But, but I wonder if they're diving that far into it. It's it, it wouldn't surprise me if somebody is because there's always there are always stats about something. I mean, there there are stats about stats about stats that eventually you work, think he, work. Let me get to the crux. Do you think you and Hammer could create an app that would help these managers on that stuff? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Hammer's Would a it be difficult for you guys to research that or not? Uh, no, not Hammer. Well, then you get into then you get into things, though, like Retractable Dome, right? Houston and Milwaukee, and they go, oh, it's 50 degrees. He's going to be, oh, wait. Turns out it's going to be 75 degrees because they're closing the roof. Then what do you do? Well, and, and then you're talking about, you know, what is the stitching of the ball? How raised is the stitching compared to... You know what we're seeing. So I mean, it's there are a lot of analytics that we could go down. Absolutely, but but know. I'm just wondering if there are some that are untapped. Is what I'm oh, saying. Oh, I'm right sh- now. I'm sure. Yeah, there's always everything is always untapped in some way, shape, or form. Okay, so that's where you're going to leave it. You're just going to let it lie, and you're going to say that we got enough analytics in the game. We got enough analytics. Too many analytics. It's like too many chefs in the kitchen, right? Too just many chefs in the let kitchen. It, let man. it be. You know, we just, know what happens then, right? Man, as John Lennon would say, let it be. Oh, Let it be. But imagine if we had all these. <laughs> oh, you're terrible, Maxie. Uh, Henry Lake coming up next on uh, WCCO. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.